be seated. And uh, this morning our children are going to leave, but this is um, promotion Sunday, so kids who are going to change classes are going to change class. So um, our children's ministry director, Val Ackerman, is going to meet. If your kids have any problem or questions, she will meet you here and and show them where they're supposed to go. So kids, you can go now and um, go to your classes and figure out where you're supposed to go. And while they are leaving, if you could take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 147, that will be the psalm of this morning. And I want to say a couple things as kids are leaving and you're opening your Bibles. I hope you'll still hear me. Um, Two things coming up that I want you to be aware of. One is uh, we have a, a small group of men from this congregation that joins with men from other congregations to minister to the prison over in Vacaville. Um, It's not every week. It's, I think, once a month or once a quarter. And um, they are looking for five men who have a heart and a desire to be on the cutting edge of of gospel ministry and to be able to go into the prison and and minister. So if um, you are interested in the least, you're looking for a place to minister and and there's kind of a, wow, that sounds like something I might want to do, I can guarantee you it is not a glamorous thing. And it's a difficult ministry, but so rewarding. If you're interested in that, um, then I'd encourage you to call. Dana Sorosik is kind of the point person in this congregation for that ministry, and I have his number in my pocket. So if you're one of those guys who just wants to know more about it and thinks maybe this is where the Lord is drawing me, then I want you to see me after service. I will give you his number, and you can contact and call Dana. So that's number one. The second thing is that our first fall prayer night is going to be on September 8th. Um, that's Wednesday night, just from 7 to 8, and the focus of our prayer time is going to be the administrators, our teachers, and our students. So I, I want to encourage all of you to try and be there, even if you don't have kids in school. You know, one of the great things about Christian love and prayer is that we intercede on behalf of people that are experiencing things that we may not be. So even if you don't have kids in school, you probably have friends who are teachers who could use your prayer. So we're going to focus our attention on the new school year, students, administrators, and teachers. So that's September 8th at 7 o'clock. Well, you heard Paulina and Pete um, talk about, and Kelly talk about Levin. We wanted to take a Sunday and focus on the compassion ministries um, and the compassion of God. And um, so I have chosen a psalm that goes right along with that theme of compassion. But before we uh, delve into this psalm, Psalm 147, which captured my attention some months ago, and and just every time I read it, the Lord stirs and warms my heart with his compassion, I wanted to ask you to just do a little mental imaging with me, and that is, I want you to imagine. I know it kind of sounds like a, a John Lennon song, imagine. I don't like that song, but uh, I will say that it's uh, ingenious because usually imagining something is the first step towards realizing it. Um, When you can think of something, oftentimes that's the first step towards it actually coming into reality. So I want you to imagine for just a moment, and this may seem like a pipe dream, but imagine for a moment Fairfield as a very different place than it is right now. Imagine for a moment that her churches churches who believe that Jesus is sovereign Lord and Savior, that those churches have earned such a reputation that they are known primarily by one thing, compassion, which is just another word for love. Imagine a city in which 
when people think or hear the word church or Christian, they don't think of the word critical, but compassion. They don't think of the word condescending, but compassion. They don't think of the word combative, but compassion. They don't think of the word competitive, but they think of the word compassion. Imagine a city in which, when a crisis unfolds, the first people unbelievers look to are not city officials or powers of state, but to Christians, because they know that they will be secure, that they will be loved, and they will be taken care of. Imagine a city in which unbelievers actually believe that we care about our schools, we care about our children, not just our own, but the children in our neighborhoods and across town, that we care about our elderly and those who are in rest homes, and that we care for the poor. Imagine if that was the banner that was held high among the churches, and that's what the church was known for, for its compassion. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that's a, that's a pipe dream of a Christian idealist, perhaps. But there have been times in history where that banner has been flown, not all throughout church history, but there have been times in which crises have unfolded and people knew where to go. They went to the Christian priests in the monastery because they knew that they'd be taken care of, because she earned for herself a reputation for compassion. And while they may not be the case, this imagine, may not be the case right now, I am encouraged to see that the Christian community has started to take back territory that's lost, has been lost, and is starting to earn back for herself a reputation. Now, whether it ever becomes the main banner by which we're known, I don't know. That's up to the Spirit of God and hopefully the work of revival. But to know that the organization that has earned a name in our community for caring for the poor, it's a Christian organization, Mission Solano. And it's making headway. To know that there is a group of people and churches, not just one, that really are concerned with kids and the education of kids and helping and supplementing what the school's doing by coming and helping kids read and and do math. That that organization that is both growing and is gaining public attention is Christian, the leaven. That should, and these are works of the Lord amongst his people. It should at least give you a sense of hope that we can earn for ourselves by the grace of God working through his people that central mark by which we should be known, namely, compassion. Now, the question that I have wrestled with, we have wrestled with as pastors, and anybody who's in church leadership has to wrestle with this question, and parents have to wrestle with this question. How do you motivate more of it? Here we are at this level. How do you get people in the congregation desiring and mobilized to take it to the next level? And not just on a corporate level. It's good to see corporate enterprises like Levin and and Mission Solano going forth. We should have those things and we should have more of them. But to recognize and to motivate within each and every Christian the realization that no matter where you live, whether you live on Pintail, Rio Grande, Capitola or Seminole Circle. 
that you have been charged by Christ for earning a reputation for him of being a compassionate individual. By the way, you treat people and care for people. How do you motivate? How do we mobilize the congregation so that what is becomes more? Now, let me tell you what I don't think motivates, but what we often revert to. Simply telling people or commanding people or challenging people, go feed the homeless or tutor kids. Let me ask you, parents, who have told your kids what they should do, how effective is that at motivating? Telling your 14-year-old boy, you need to be more responsible. How often does that then spark within them a sense of, wow, I need to be more responsible. Therefore, based upon your command, I feel like I want to be more responsible. Commands, imperatives, and instructions were never meant to motivate. They don't. Let's try it with a teenager. You wives who want your husbands to be better leaders, how well does it work to say, you know, you should be a better leader? It may last for a week or two out of guilt, but it's not sustained because there's no motive unless it comes from within. So how do you motivate? Now, on one level, we could go right to the root and say it's the Spirit of God that provides the motivation. Absolutely, it's God's grace. But in another way, I think what motivates and what the Spirit uses to motivate is firsthand experience. What I mean by that is for a person to give God's love, they must first receive God's love. That's the way of Christianity. We don't give anything that we have not first taken in. We cannot do anything for God until we first take in, in that sacred center of the human soul where both mind and heart merge. When we realize what he has done for us, we've tasted and we know it, then we're in a place where we will both be motivated to do it, and we have something then to give because we're being authentic. So how do you motivate actions of compassion? Well, you feast yourself upon the compassion of God, know it firsthand for yourself, then you have the motive with which then to give compassion. So instead of just saying you need to be more compassionate, I think the way to motivate, and I believe this is biblical, is, is to let people taste and by the Spirit of God, experience for themselves the compassion of God that has been revealed to us in Christ and in creation. And then they'll find motive. You're not going to have to beat people up or make them feel guilty. You know, if you want a really good uh, psychology lesson, just look at children and what motivates them. Uh, we just got back from a camping trip. That's where we were. My family's been doing it. This is its 38th year. I was five years old when we started going to this place, caught my first fish there, and my kid kids caught their first fish there. Anyway, my youngest, four and a half years old, we, we left him with my, with my niece, who's 30. And she went to feed him lunch, and she fed him sloppy joes. You know, bad for the body, good for the soul. <laughs> sloppy joes are called sloppy joes for a reason. They're sloppy, and they look nasty. Well, he looked at that, never tried it before, and he said, I know I like that. And my 
my niece, again, 30 years old, she's a mother of two of her own, so she knows persistence is the key. So she said, you know what? Why don't you just try it? Try it once. And surprisingly, my son Isaac said, okay. So he tried this ugly, sloppy Joe. And she told me his eyes brightened. And he says, I love sloppy Joe's. (laughs) And he proceeded to devour sloppy Joe's. Now, that is simplistic, but that is how we humans were wired and God made us that way. Namely, when we taste something that we like, we desire it. And when we desire it, we act upon it. Action is always motivated by desire, and we gain desire by tasting something. So if you want the action, people, all of us need to taste it. That was what Paul said when he says, the love of Christ compels me. He tasted it himself, and now that's the compelling motivation of his life, was that he tasted it himself, and then he has something to give. So we approach this kind of leaven Sunday in which we celebrate compassion and What I want to do is not tell you to be compassionate, although all of us know we should. What I'd like us to do is just pull out our metaphorical cups. And for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear and spiritual taste buds to taste, just dip that cup into the river of God's compassion and drink it for ourselves. Because I think that will do more to motivate compassion than simply saying you need to be compassionate. And the psalm, the one psalm that came to mind when we were putting this on the map was Psalm 147. It's a, it's a, a compelling and beautiful picture of how God shows compassion to his entire creation. Let me read it for you. Praise the Lord. This isn't part of the message, but you know that three-letter a three-word sentence, praise the Lord, translates one Hebrew word, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. For it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is the Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. I'm going to stop there because that's all we're going to look at. This is a psalm that, at least from the outset, is a call to worship, to praise and to sing, which he defines as fitting and good and pleasant, which means pleasurable. It's good for the heart to praise the Lord. And that praise and that worship and that singing is based upon the entire list that follows of everything that God does. He is the subject of almost all of the verbs in this psalm at least the first nine verses. And the psalmist gathers his thoughts about what God does around three things. You'll see it, I think, it's clear in a moment. How God cares for his people, verses 2 and 3. How he cares for the stars, verse 4, 5. 
and how he cares for this thing we call planet Earth and its creatures. And that is verse 8 and 9. So he's going to talk about God's compassion around these three things of his people and the stars in the heavens and also um, his creatures on planet Earth and how he cares for the Earth. He begins where the heart of God starts, and that is with his people, the apple of his eye, his chosen possession, Israel, the people that he had uh, taken out of Egypt, not because of any righteousness of their own, mind you, but because God is rich in mercy and compassion, and he chose them. He chose them to be a special possession, his treasure, that he would be their God and they would be his people. The most important thing in all creation is his people, for the sake of his name. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds, is what it says. It's such a tender picture. Now, many believe that this psalm was written historically, for those of you who are historically minded, somewhere around the 5th century, after Israel had experienced a heart-wrenching devastation and judgment because of her unfaithfulness to God. The city was in ruins. But God, in his mercy and grace and compassion, sent Nehemiah to rebuild her, her walls, her city. The psalmist sees the compassion of God in this, that he is rebuilding for us our home. And not only is he rebuilding our home, but he's gathering his people back together into her. And those broken Hearts, those hearts that have been emotionally devastated by both sin and circumstance, he's healing the hearts and he's binding up their wounds, which is probably the wounds caused by sins, spiritual wounds. This is a picture of a God who is immediately present in their situation, creating for them a home, healing their heart, and binding up their wounds. In other words, the The psalmist sees him not as distant or disinterested, but as near, compassionate, caring, home, heart, and binding up their wounds. This is what he's doing for the Old Testament church. This is what he does for us, because we are the New Testament church. The same, though somewhat transposed because of the work of Christ. But this is the way he cares for his people. And it signifies the heart of the Lord and something we should taste. And just so you think that this isn't just a couple verses in a big book, this is the heart of God from beginning to the end of the Bible. He's a God who builds homes for his people because he cares about where you live. Or should I say that you have a place to live? Genesis 2 tells us that God planted a garden. He did it. The very first gardener in the Bible is is the Lord. And in that garden, he's the one who made fruit trees grow. So he created this first home in which it says that he then placed the first man as our God, creating a home with food in which he places man. You get to the great Old Testament event of the Exodus and you find that God leads his people out of Egypt through the wilderness and brings them into a land where homes are already built and vineyards are already planted. A home. Looked at through the lens of John 14, the work of Christ in his death and his resurrection was to secure for us a home. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And that preparation was his death. So that you might be in my father's house where there are many rooms. 
At the end of history, we're told that we are going to live in a city whose builder and architect is God, Hebrews chapter 11. The, the Bible pictures God as one who's compassionate enough to provide a place for his people to live. He cares about a home, and he's creating a home. The work of Christ is about securing us a home and healing the broken hearts and the wounds. That's, that's the heart of, of the Lord. And I know sometimes we so emphasize the eternal, which we should, that we oftentimes forget that he does care about the temporal. And to know, for those of you who are staring foreclosure in the face, he does care that you have a place to live. For those of you who are here and and you've just been devastated emotionally by any number of things, husband that neglects you, girlfriend that broke up with you, a son or daughter who resents you, or the passing away of your parent. He cares. He cares about your heart. And he's the healer of your heart. So he does care about the temporal things. I hope you hear that and taste it. God does care about my situation. But also to know that even the situation is nothing compared to the home that Christ has made for me eternally. And nothing can take that away. So he gives us an amazing picture of God's compassion for his people. But then he almost takes a right turn. Like It took me a while to kind of discover what this is about. Because he's talking about the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Then all of a sudden he's like, switches gears like radically. He determines the number of stars. I mean, the first part's so tender. And then we talk about astronomy. Like what in the world was he doing? He now takes us like on this journey up to how God is dealing with the stars. But I think it serves the purpose of underscoring and emphasizing his care about his people. He tells us in this next thing in which he talks about what God does, that he determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Kind of the the punchline of this is to astound us with God's exhaustive care for the huge things in the universe and his power, the power of compassion. He determines the number of the stars which means he not only determines their placement, but their time and their number. He determines when they ignite and when they go out. And they don't ignite and they don't go out, and there's not more or less than he determines. Every star. But then he goes a bit beyond that and tells us that God, in his exhaustive knowledge and care, has a name for every one of them. To translate it literally, it says that he calls all the stars by name, which is a sign not only of ownership, but personal intimate knowledge of every star in the universe. <laughs> he knows and has given them, cares enough about them that he gives them a name. Even the ones that are in some dark pocket that people will never see, that may only be seen by angelic eyes, that are simply there burning, wasting energy, providing heat for lifeless and desolate planets. Even those have names. 
Every one of them. Now, just to put that in terms of understanding, we know things by comparison. Uh, astronomers tell us, and I don't know how they arrive at this figure, some equation based upon mass and, and gravity. They tell us that there's over 100 billion stars in our galaxy alone. There's 100 billion. There's 6 billion people on the planet. 100 billion. He has a name for each one of them, determines every one of them. I mean, I have a hard time remembering just a couple hundred people's names. But he knows them all. Then you add to that the fact that there are countless galaxies with countless numbers of stars. That means it's, it's pretty darn near unfathomable, which is why he says his understanding is beyond measure. And we don't have calculators with enough space for that many zeros. And we have not invented words for numbers that go that high. But the point is he knows every one of them. They are owned by him, and he cares enough to name them. So the next time that you feel like of the six billion people on this planet, how can the Lord possibly care about my situation? Just remember what he knows and what he cares about. And then remember that you're far more important to him than a star or a thousand stars. Because I'll tell you what, Jesus didn't die in place of a star. He died in place of his people. And if he can number the gazillion times the gazillion stars and care and determine their existence, then your life is a cinch to him. You're not that infinitesimal. He cares about his people. So he takes us on the journey of the stars to remind us that God in his power and understanding is so beyond what we can imagine or think and he cares and can care about the details. Then the last point, that's he focused on people, focused on the stars. Then he brings us back down to earth. (laughs) Literally back down to earth. And talks about what God does in relationship to this thing we call our home, the planet He says in verse 8, he covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow in the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. Now, if you haven't started to taste it yet, and I, I just really hope that what is being said and more importantly read here aren't like raindrops that simply fall and beat off of your soul. But as they fall and you're considering what God has done in, in, in healing the brokenhearted and binding up their wounds and, and the fact that he cares about the gargantuan things, I hope that that seeps into the ground of your soul, not dribbles off. Because what's said here in verses uh, 8 and following, or is, at least it seems to seep into my soul, he says, covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares the rain for the earth. He makes grass grow in the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. Do you see the progression? He begins up high with the clouds in the heavens, and then he gets down to the low children of birds. He has went from the highly significant to the insignificant. From clouds and rain all the way down to some squawking, irritating, unclean birds. In the Jewish mind, a raven, 
is on the blacklist. You can eat chickens. You can eat Cornish game hens. Ravens, no. They touch and eat dead things, which means they're off the chart. And yet what we're told is that God cares enough to feed baby ravens that are screaming. I've never heard baby ravens scream before, but I understand it's like the most horrid alarm clock you can possibly imagine. The whole point is that God cares for the macro and the micro. He cares enough to feed the birds. So he's showing us the compassion of the Lord. I hope you're starting to taste. Now, let me just stop and tell all of us that this is how we should see the world around us. But most of us don't because we have allowed our scientific age to pollute the way that we see the world around us. So when we see rainfall, clouds going overhead, when we see grass grow and cattle eating on the hills and we see little birds, we're thinking and taught to think in terms of natural processes, natural laws that govern the universe. Not God, but self-existent, quote-unquote, laws and processes that govern the universe. And God has been completely wiped out of our view of the world around us. The psalmist has different glasses. Right here, you notice God is the subject of these verbs. He's the one who covers the heavens with clouds. That's his work. Not a bunch of sterile laws that are bringing the clouds along. He's the one who prepares the rain for the earth, and he's the one who makes the grass grow on the hills. He's the one who gives uh, food to the beasts and to the young ravens. It's his job. It is what he does. He sees the world alive with the works of God every moment. So that a chirp of a bird is every every bit as much a work of the Lord as when God said, let there be light, and it flashed for the first time out of nothing. Christians have lost the ability to see the extraordinary in the ordinary because we see through secular eyes. Let me say that the only reason that the universe operates in an orderly and consistent fashion is because God graciously wills it and sustains it to be so. What we call natural law is simply acknowledging the faithfulness, consistency, and the the sustaining faithfulness of the Lord every day. They call it a law, but it's the Lord's hand. So imagine seeing the world through this eye of knowing when you see a, a rose bloom, oh, that's the work of the Lord. You sit down to a meal. Yes, you went to the grocery store and you bought it, but God gave you the money to go to the grocery store and God also provided the meat and or the vegetables to get to the store that you eat. And you sit down and you go, wow, this is the work of the Lord. That I have even a little tiny shelter over my head is a work of the Lord. You will see God's compassion all around you. That's how he sees it. And it's how we should see it if we believe that all things are sustained by the living word of God, namely Christ. If he ceased to exist, nothing would exist. So everything is his work. We would, if, if, if you can put on those glasses and we can train ourselves by the Spirit of God to see with those eyes, we'd walk out of this sanctuary utterly amazed at the compassion of the Lord all around us. 
That's why I think the psalmist in Psalm 33 could say, the, the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. You look and it's everywhere, but we don't see it. Because we see through secular eyes, not the eyes of faith and Scripture. I would venture to say if, if each of us, when we look down at a daisy, when we see a birth of a child, a rainstorm, a good conversation, a Sunday morning to worship, that we see God working and we see his compassion all around us, then we will be drinking from the compassion of the Lord and you know what? You know what you're going to say to your unbelieving neighbor? Oh, God is good. His compassion is all around you. This is a, the heart of the Lord, my friends. God has given all authority to his son who gave his life to redeem this world. Jesus heals the brokenhearted, binds up their wounds. He gives you a place to live, and he is building for us a place to live. He's the one that brings the rain, causes grass to grow, and feeds his creation. My hope and prayer is that we will come to know and taste firsthand the compassion of the Lord then I believe we as a body and the Christian community will discover the motive to then give it to other people. And perhaps, just perhaps, one day, what we imagine God will do. I hope, brothers and sisters, that the first priority of your life is to know the love of Christ, which goes beyond understanding. When you know that, your life will change and continue to change as you come to know him. So let's um, close this with um, petition and prayer. You've heard the word and read the word. Now ask the Lord, 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 will you help me to know your love firsthand, the love of Christ Will you give me eyes and glasses to see in the world around me your compassion every day and everywhere? So will you spend just a moment in the silence of your heart praying that, and then I'm going to ask us to pray for some people in the congregation who are given to this ministry. So you just pray for your own heart. Ask the Lord to give you those spiritual taste buds. Open eyes to see, to relish and to soak in. I firmly believe that the Lord God of heaven is here and his spirit is here. And he responds to the prayer of faith. Now 
I want to single out some people in the congregation, not to embarrass them, but because they need your prayers. Um, I would like, and I don't want you to be bashful or wait, I just want you to stand up. I would like those of you who are involved in the Levin ministry, our ministry of compassion to children, if you would just stand where you're at. Don't be afraid, just stand up. And then I would also like those of you who are involved in Mission Solano and are part of our compassion hand towards the homeless and the poor, if you would stand. Those of you who are involved in prison ministry in Solano, or if you're in another place, if you would stand. And then if you are involved in the Alpha Pregnancy Resource Center, which is our ministry of compassion to those who are pregnant and those who have had abortions, if you would stand. Thank you for standing. Now, I am going to ask those of you who are around those people, um, I want you to bless them. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to get up and just gather around them. I want you to put your hands on them. I want you to